Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. It was about uh, three years ago this summer that uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina experienced a horrific scene. A gunman entered their prayer meeting. And of course, that prayer meeting was packed with parishioners and congregation members, and he opened fire. And he killed dozens of people that night, including, by the way, the pastor of that church. And on June 21st, 2015, a Sunday after the gunman had opened fire, one of the ministers there on staff, Reverend Norville Goff, said these words where only a half a week before such a great evil had descended upon his church that nine people had been killed and more people than that had been injured by an act of racism and hatred. Listen to what he says. He said, we ask questions, Lord. We ask questions why. We can't help it. It's our human nature. But through it all, those of us who know Jesus, as we find ourselves engulfed in sadness and darkness, and as we find ourselves walking through the shadow of valley of death, for those of us who know Jesus, we can look through the windows of our faith, and we see hope, and we see light, and we hear your voice saying, I am with you. Those words resonated with me as a pastor of a church. It was interesting that a few weeks after he gave that initial address, Reverend Goff was interviewed by one of the national syndicates. And it was interesting. They asked him how in the world he would be able to forgive someone who walked into his church, shot and injured people, killed people, including his pastor and his Friend, how in the world would he be able to show grace to that kind of person to that type of extent? Maybe you saw, by the way, uh, as the parishioners filed into the courtroom as they were arraigning the gunman. And one by one, they came up to the, to the microphone there and spoke to the judge. And one by one, each one told that gunman that they loved him, that they forgave him for what he had done, and that they hoped that one day he himself would find Jesus Christ and receive the ultimate pardon, ultimate forgiveness. And Reverend Goff said something that really stuck in my head for some three years. He said this, he said that, you know what, grace is difficult, grace is hard. Forgiveness is difficult, forgiveness is hard. He said grace is messy, but grace can be marvelous. Grace can be messy, can it? You know, I think sometimes we pastors, we, we present issues of life, areas of life where we have to forgive people, and we put them in a little box, and, and people that are really going through dark times, difficult times, we, we sort of present them this box, and we say, here, forgive that person who's done you wrong. Forgive that person who has slighted you. Forgive that person who stabbed you in the back. Forgive that person who said something about you that was untrue, slandered your name. 
And, and we receive this box and we open it and there's forgiveness in there. And yet it's very difficult because what's in the box doesn't seem to match what's going on in our life. We have a hard time with it. And as I've gotten older, and I'm not as old as some of you, but as I've gotten older, I've come to realize the fact that grace and forgiveness in many ways can be a process. Grace in many ways is not something that comes uh, tidally bound in a little spiritual box, but rather it's something that comes broken. It's something that comes to us damaged. It's something that comes to us out of hurt and suffering and pain. Grace and forgiveness is messy. But at the end of the day, when we're able to experience that grace, which if you know Jesus, we all have experienced that kind of grace. But at the end of the day, when we experience that kind of grace, and yet when we give that grace out, it is marvelous. Reverend Goff's words are true. So do me a favor. Fill in that first blank. Grace is always messy, but it's always marvelous as well. To give you a little bit of background on where we are today, we're back in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 in particular. And I'm excited to be back here today because it's one of my favorite stories in the entire gospel narrative of Luke. And to catch you up, let's see where we've been. Jesus has been traveling from Capernaum, starting in Luke chapter 7, verse 1, where he healed the, the sick servant of the Roman officer. From there, he travels to Nain, which is where we were two weeks ago, and he heals the widow's son. The widow's son, by the way, is more than just a healing. He was dead and about to be buried. He raises that widow's son up from the dead. And while in that town, Jesus is confronted with the followers of John the Baptist. If you remember, John the Baptist has been captured, he's been incarcerated, and he's facing a, a, a judgment of death. He's going to be beheaded. And John the Baptist, like any normal human being, is, is wondering, hey, uh, Jesus, you're supposed to be my cousin. I'm supposed to be your forerunner. Isaiah talked about me kind of a lot. Uh, I, I feel like I should be someplace different than jail. Uh, are you really the Christ? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Savior? And so Jesus speaks to John's disciples and gives John some great encouragement. And now in the same town as Jesus is traveling, he's invited to eat with one of the Pharisees who we actually know this Pharisee's name. His name is Simon. So don't get him confused with Simon Peter, who is the disciple. is a totally different person. And then we see that there are a few characters in this story. First, we have Simon the Pharisee, and we discover uh, that Jesus has been asked to come in and, and have dinner uh, with Simon. Now, in a moment, I'm going to tell you that it, it, we believe that it was probably at one of these high holy feasts that Jesus was invited to come in and spend some time with this Pharisee. So it wasn't just Pharisee and Jesus. There were probably a large amount of people that were there, and Jesus was also invited to come into Simon's home. Second, we have a lowly woman. You'll see that she is two things, a woman of the city, and she is a sinful woman. We'll talk about both those things in just a moment. And lastly, we are presented with Jesus and his followers. They're all there as well. Can you imagine that scene? You have the religious elite Pharisees and you have Jesus Christ sitting at opposite sides of the table. And there's people all around surrounding Jesus and Simon the Pharisee as they are conversing 
back and forth with one another, Simon probably grilling Jesus question after question, trying to possibly trap him. That was sort of the nature of the Pharisees back in these days, always trying to trap Jesus into saying something that might make himself look guilty or make him look like a fraud. And then you have Jesus, as the scripture tells us, reclining, (laughs) totally at ease, totally comfortable in his own skin, feeling no pressure at all. And at every question that Simon is asking Jesus, Jesus is giving the most godly responses that anyone could possibly offer. And meanwhile, you've got all the people that are at this party, including Jesus' disciples, and they are silent. And they are just listening to Jesus banter back and forth with Simon the Pharisee. It was quite a scene. And so this morning, let's read from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. I'm reading this morning, by the way, from the English Standard Version. In verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. By the way, if you want to, when he says that he said to himself, we need to understand that this is the inner monologue of the Pharisee. The Pharisee didn't mumble it under his breath. He didn't, he didn't say it out loud. He didn't write it on a sheet of paper. This is the innermost thought of this man. He's thinking it to himself. And notice what Jesus does. And Jesus answering him. <laughs> because Jesus knows our hearts. And Jesus knows our thoughts. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. That's a scary thing, isn't it? Stuart, I've got something to say to you. Boy, you better get ready for that. Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. (laughs) That's a bold response. And Jesus tells a parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. By the way, that's about a two months wage in the ancient world. And the other, 50. And that's about a day's wage in the ancient world. When they could not pay, he canceled the one debt. He canceled the debt of both. Now, which one would love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were there at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? 
And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So very three, three small points about this woman that I want to examine today. One, this woman was neglected. This was a neglected woman. In verse 36 and 37, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house, reclined at his table, and behold, a woman of the city. This was a neglected woman. Friends, do you remember when you were in grade school or elementary school? Remember those days? Those were good days, right? Some of you are nodding. Some of you, not so much. I remember those days. I, uh, for, well, sadly, uh, most of us, if you had to look back at some of the more non-favorable years of your life, they came in grade school, like elementary school or grade school. And I would say that I was right there with you. Those were some of the hardest years of my life. Uh, growing up as a kid, I, I was not the mountain of a man that you see before you today. I, uh, I lacked for confidence. I was a little bit awkward. Uh, I was really not a very good student. I struggled uh, mightily in school. Uh, And to be honest with you, I was really not uh, a a very good athlete. Um, And so I was one of those kids who seemed to sort of always drift off towards the side. I, I had a hard time finding my footing, finding my place in school. Those were those were hard days. And chances are some of you know exactly uh, what that feels like. Uh, when I looked around the landscape of the people that I went to school with, there were students that had it more together. They were, they were smarter than me. Uh, they, had, they, were, they were much better at sports uh, than I was. And so elementary, junior high, grade school, those were always tough years. And perhaps the hardest place for a kid like me to live uh, came in the form of gym class. Remember gym class? Those are good days, right? Let me tell you guys, the awkward chubby kid has a hard time in gym class. That was me. I always had a hard time there. I always had uh, that one particular coach, by the way, that always lined up kids like me and put them on one team. And then all of the kids that were like super men athletes that were clearly on performance enhancing drugs on another team. And that's when we played the, the great game of dodgeball. Remember the great game of dodgeball? I tell you what, those were the days, right? <laughs> well, I remember, I can also remember the other, the, the coaches that would, that would assign picking privileges to, to kids. You remember those, those things too where you, where you have two kids and then you kind of have this mob of students that are out here and then a kid would pick and then another kid would pick and another kid would pick and another kid would pick. And, and I can remember times in my life where inevitably I was the last person picked. Remember those days? Thank you all, by the way, for letting me have this therapy with you today. <laughs> this is so great. I feel weight just coming off of my shoulders. But, you know, I can remember the feeling of what it meant to be picked last and how that highlighted uh, all of the insecurities that you have. It amplifies all the flaws uh, that you have and the shortcomings that you may have. And you put it on display, by the way, when you're the last person picked or when you're the not person picked. It's like, here I am, all of my flaws, shortcomings, and insecurities out here in front of all of my peers so that they can see them. That's a hard place to be. 
It doesn't feel good to be neglected. It doesn't feel good to be chosen last or not chosen at all. And, and chances are we've all felt that way on some level before feeling neglected, the last picked. Well, let me share you something with you about the, the human condition. If people go long enough in that kind of a setting where they feel broken, where they feel neglected, where they feel never picked, then something inside of that person begins to rot and die and become broken on the inside. That person begins to shrink into the darkness. And it's very difficult for that person to come back out. When we meet the woman in this story, we know very little about her, by the way. And that was the case with most women during the days of Jesus Christ. They were shoved to the back. They were not listened to. They really had no place in society. They were second-class citizens. They had no rights, no privileges. And if it weren't for their husbands and sons, no one would take care of them. If you were a woman, you were basically invisible to society. And the one thing that I love about Jesus is if there was any person that had a wonderful place in Jesus' ministry, it was always women. Jesus always had a place of prominence for women in his ministry. And that includes this story. The scripture tells us that she was a woman of the city. That's a fairly nondescript term. We don't know her name. We don't know where or what part of the city that she lived. We do, we do know a little bit about her background, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. And again, if you go to the Greek translation of this passage, the, the term woman is the word gune. And listen to what it actually means. It means this. A, it means a woman of any age. It can mean a widow, a wife, a single female, or a married female. And isn't it interesting that in this particular text that Luke gives this woman, just this woman, the gune term that means she is little significance to anyone. To anyone. She doesn't have a name. She doesn't have an age. She doesn't have a home. She doesn't even have a status. It's absolutely nothing. In many ways, in this text, this woman is a ghost. We know nothing about her. We, we also know one other thing about this woman. We know that she was not invited. <laughs> she was not picked. She was not welcome to be there. They didn't send her a party invitation. She shows up uninvited and crashes the Pharisees' party. Scripture tells us this Pharisee had asked Jesus and his disciples to come eat with him. And Jesus was enjoying, by the way, at this point, the higher points of ministry. Jesus was interesting. His followers were captivating. Even the Pharisees were interested in him and wanted to know more about Jesus and all these people that were following them. Jesus was popular. He was, in, he was the in crowd, if you know what that means. He was the, the in guy at that time. And Jesus at this time was borderline famous. Isn't there something, by the way, that we can identify that, that with this woman, that she was nothing? We don't know her name. We don't know where she came from. She was a nobody from nowhere and could offer almost nothing. She was the last picked person. To be truthful, she wasn't even the picked person. She was the no-picked person. And here's the the good news. 
The good news today for us is that instead of moving away from the neglected and downcast, we worship a Savior who moves towards them. This will not be the only time, by the way, in Jesus' ministry that he, that he sits down with broken people and ministers to them. He's constantly surrounded by them and offers them hope. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, listen to what it says. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him. There was no one more hated than a tax collector. And there was no one more dreadful to the Pharisee than a sinner. And yet they were all drawing near to Christ. Isn't it amazing that we as believers, small Christians, small Jesuses, that isn't it amazing that, that the most broken people among us, we generally try to push away the most? Isn't it amazing that the people that are most sinful among us, instead of allowing them to come close to us so that they can experience the grace of Christ, isn't it amazing that we often are pushing them away? And yet when you look at the narrative of Christ, Jesus is always surrounded and bringing the broken to him. This woman was neglected, but she was also, look at B, she was notorious. Again, back in 36 and 37, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at his table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Who was a sinner. The first time, it's odd how I sit down and, and think of, of things to say on a Sunday morning. I was reading my Bible and I was coming through this. And when I saw that word, who is a sinner, the first word that popped in my head was notorious. Notorious. The first time I really took, work, took notice of the word notorious, it was attached to pop culture. Most of you are probably not familiar with the rap world. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not really either. But when I was a kid, there was a popular rapper by the name of the Notorious B.I.G., Notorious B.I.G. Some of the younger generations are like, yeah. And some of the older generations are like, what are you talking about? It's just my generation. But there was a rapper by the name of the Notorious B.I.G. And he became even more notorious in death than probably in life. He was, he was shot in a drive-by shooting by rival mobsters, gangsters, rappers, whatever it was. He was murdered on the streets. And the news of his murder went all over the airwaves. And as a kid of that day, I remember being a part of that and listening to those, uh, and listening to those news, uh, news broadcasts. And that was really the first time the word notorious became something in my mind that I remembered. And I learned after his death that being notorious was not always a good thing. Being notorious could be a bad thing. And such is the case with this lady. She was notorious. She was vilified and hated. No one liked her and everybody knew of her. Listen to Luke's description of her. She was a woman from the city who was a sinner. Ouch. And for the record, everyone could be introduced that way. Stuart Davidson a man of the city and a sinner. <laughs> Derek, a man of the city and a sinner. Candace, a woman of the city, Candace, and a sinner. 
We could all be introduced that way, after all. And again, we have to listen to what Luke is really saying. Again, let's go back to the Greek. The Greek word for sinner here is hamatarlos. And it's really interesting because when you go back into what this word says, we get a, an accurate description of what this woman's sin really was. The word means that she was filled with sin, that she was preeminently sinful. She was especially wicked, a complete heathen. Imagine the most lost woman that you can think of today. Imagine the most lost person that you can think of today. And that is the type of person we're talking about here. Preeminently sinful, filled with sin. That was the woman who was laying at Jesus' feet. She was so sinful that the only description that Luke could give of her was her sin. Now see, when you're introduced into public circles, you're generally introduced as an accountant. You're introduced as a, a lawyer. You're introduced as a doctor. But can you imagine going into a public setting and being introduced not by what you do, but by who you are on the inside. A sinner. She was someone that no one wanted and everybody was familiar with her sinful behavior. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she was a drug addict. Maybe she was an alcoholic. Maybe she was a homosexual. Maybe she was all three, all four of them all wrapped in together. Who knows? Either way, Either way, I can tell you this, she was not invited to that party. <laughs> she was not invited to eat there. And sin is a funny thing, isn't it? It, it seems uh, great at the time that we are experiencing it, and it has that way of making us feel elated, but at the end of the day, it leaves us broken and, and hollow and empty and dry, and that's exactly what sin had done to this woman. One of my favorite statements about sin comes from Ravi Zacharias. You've probably heard it before. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than where you want to stay, and cost you more than you were willing to pay. That's the truth. And this woman had found herself in over her head in sin and no one there to help her. And she probably has asked for help before from all the religious people. And all the religious people said no. And kicked her out. John chapter 8. Verse 34, Jesus says to this, uh, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And this woman was a slave to sin. She was neglected. She was notorious. But she was also needy. Again, picking up from verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, wiping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. She enters this, uh, she enters this proclaimed sinner to the celebration that Jesus had been invited to. And again, Jesus would have been there with all of his followers. Chances are there were other Pharisees that had gathered there as well. And most scholars believe that the reason that the Pharisees had invited Jesus to come into his home 
was to celebrate most likely one of the Jewish festivals that was occurring at that time. And during, by the way, uh, periods of Jewish festivals, it was customary for the homes that were celebrating these festivals to leave their doors open for the poor and for the needy. It doesn't mean that they were necessarily invited. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were there to, to take over the party. But if there was a poor, needy, broken person, if there was a starving person, they could enter the home after the celebration was over, mind you, and they could look on the floor for crumbs of food that had fallen to the ground, and they would be able to maybe feed themselves from these grand celebration. Well, this door was open, and this woman took the invitation, and she said, I am coming to see Jesus today. This woman came sincerely. There were no pretenses to her, by the way. She knew she was a sinner. The description that Luke made of her was accurate, and she came with absolutely no pretense. She came humbly. Notice she comes bowing her face before the Lord, saying to herself, just in prostrate, saying, Lord, help me. She comes sacrificially. She breaks open the most expensive thing that she had. By the way, that alabaster uh, vial of perfume, that would have been close to a year's wage. And it was sealed. The only way to have access to the perfume that was in it is to shatter the alabaster which contained it. She broke something for Jesus and anointed him with her tears and with the ointment that was inside. This is a needy woman. She came to Jesus aware of her sin. She came unashamed, ready to create a scene, which she absolutely did. She came repentant. She was ready for a change in her life, and that change came in the form of Jesus himself. In Psalm chapter 91, listen to these words. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by the day. How many of us need the, the refuge under the wings of Christ? And this woman found them. For the very first time, potentially in her whole life, found somebody that would care for her. Well, let's look at Roman numeral two. We see Jesus' response. His response was teachable. Teachable. In verse 40, and Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And Luke does something very interesting here. He exposes the Pharisees' thoughts and then allows Jesus to turn the conversation away from the woman and on to the self-righteous Pharisee, Simon. Why? Clearly, Jesus used this moment to teach Simon something. If it was one thing that Jesus knew about Simon and the Pharisees, they had the capacity to be just a smidge judgmental about sinners and Gentiles. The Pharisees were a wicked, judgmental group. Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, he calls them wicked snakes and a brood of vipers. That's how he felt about them. They always felt like they had 
to be the most pious, most righteous, most deserving, or, or even the most perfect people. So it was not unusual Jesus would point out this flaw in such a teachable way to Simon. See, it wasn't the woman who was broken before Jesus that needed to be taught. It was the Pharisee. And Simon, who loves the most, the one whose huge debt is forgiven or the one whose small debt is forgiven? That's an easy answer, Jesus. The one who has a massive debt is more grateful for the forgiveness of that debt. Simon knew immediately, because Simon was an educated man, who and what Jesus was actually talking about. The woman had this massive sin debt. And in reviewing her debt, Simon would have realized that he, if he was being honest with himself, that he had pervasive sin in his own life as well. So notice, by the way, that neither Jesus nor Simon disputed the debt of this woman. She was absolutely a sinner, yet Jesus remarks what woman a sinner did for him that Simon, a righteous, pious, religious man, did not do for him. Simon did not welcome Jesus, but she did. Because she washed his feet, a customary thing in the ancient world to wash someone's feet as they entered your home. Simon offered that or did not offer that to Jesus at all. But this woman came in with ointment, with tears, and washed his feet. Simon didn't welcome him. Simon didn't love Jesus. Notice, by the way, that when the woman walks in, or when she probably crawls in, she washes Jesus' feet with the ointment, with her tears, and she begins to kiss the feet of Jesus Christ. It was customary back in these days when you were to walk into someone's home for a kiss to be delivered. We notice, by the way, that Judas does this in the garden. Remember that Judas signals that Jesus is the identity of the man that they're coming to capture with a kiss. Kissing, by the way, back in these days, it signified friendship. It signified love. And this woman didn't kiss the face. She kissed the feet of Christ. Simon did not deliver that to Jesus. Jesus, you're no friend of mine. Simon did not respect Jesus, but this woman did. She respected him by anointing his feet. By the way, if you go all the way back to 1 Samuel, you'll see that there is wonderful things that are attached to anointing. One, healing is attached to anointing. Anointing someone or a wound or a sickness with oil back in the Old Testament world, uh, the oil had medicinal properties, they believed. And they believed that if you were to anoint someone, that that oil would, would remove the sin, it would remove the hurt, it would remove the wound, and so they would use that as medicine. But it also meant something else. It also signified kingship. When Samuel came to anoint the head of David, he anointed him with the same kind of oil, the same type of substance that, that, that this woman is anointing Jesus' head with or his feet with. And what, what Samuel is saying is, David, you are the king. And in anointing Jesus' feet, she's saying so much more to Jesus, I love you. She's saying, Jesus, you are my king. And like every other king of Israel that had to be anointed, Jesus also had to be anointed. And he was anointed right here, not by Samuel, but by a sinner. She respected him, and Simon did not. It's my belief. Now, this is just Stuart's belief. 
It's my belief that Simon invited Jesus to his home, not out of friendship. He invited Jesus to his home to to do one thing, to try to embarrass him before his disciples. Simon wanted to be that one that unmasked Jesus as a sham and a fraud. And sadly, Jesus knew Simon's heart. And it was he that was exposed as a fraud, a sinner in righteous man's clothing. A sinner in righteous man's clothing. And Jesus may have known Simon's thoughts, but he also knew Simon's heart. He knew that Simon needed this object lesson on forgiveness and acceptance. I would say this, that Jesus shows love to two people in this story. Yes, he surely shows love to this woman who is at his feet, but I believe he also shows love to Simon by exposing the sin in his life and by telling Simon the truth. Truth. Simon, look at who you are. You're a sinner in righteous man's clothing, Simon. What lessons are you learning from Christ about forgiveness? What lessons are you learning about Jesus in grace? What grace has been given to you that you can remember, I need to be that way to other people as well? Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. This woman had left the law behind, and you're going to see that here in the next and last point. We see Jesus' response was teachable, but we also see that it was transformational. Then those, in verse 49 and 50, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who can even forgive sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus enters, or excuse me, encounters this woman of the city, a sinner, and she comes in with great notoriety and not the good kind. And after her honoring and worshiping, Jesus sets her free. He forgives her of her sins. And then he tells her to go in peace. And the Greek here, by the way, is is again so telling. Arana means peace. Listen to what it actually means. It means to possess a state of tranquility. To be exempt from rage. To be exempt from the havoc of war. It means security, safety, prosperity, and peacefulness. When is the last time, when is the last time that you felt that kind of peace? Now, you might have possessed it for a moment, but I'll tell you this. The only type of peace that this woman possesses is the only kind of peace that you can get from Christ. You'll find it no other place. I'll offer you a closing illustration. I want to tell you about a, name, a, a woman by the name of Julia Johnston. Julia Johnston, when she was born in Ohio in 1849 during the height of the women's suffrage movement, Julia became a believer in Christ. And she wanted to impact her community for Jesus. She wanted to become a teacher. She also wanted to be a a preacher. She wanted to be a leader in her church. But because of the times, well, by the way, Julia was raised in a very strict Presbyterian home, had a Presbyterian minister as a father, by the way. 
And, and as she wanted to help lead in the church, because of the day and time in which she lived, women were not allowed to really speak in church, much less teach, much less preach. And so Julia did the one thing that she knew to do. She began to write. And, and specifically, she began to write hymns. And she wrote one of the most impactful hymns that you'll find in your Southern Baptist hymnal. And it's the hymn that's entitled, Grace Greater Than Our Sin. And listen to these words. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. By the way, these words remind me that the sinner that despite what has happened in a person's life, God's grace has wiped all their sin away through the death of Jesus. She continues, Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there's a flowing crimson tide, brighter than snow you may be today. Again, despite what humans may think can be done, sin cannot be hidden. It's going to be brought to light. She continues, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what's happened in your life. It doesn't matter if you're a man, a woman, a boy, a girl. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, white or black, Hispanic or any other thing. Grace is offered to everyone. And finally, as the case with gospel hymnody, the refrain follows after each stanza and really is the most important part of the whole hymn. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Friends, it's all about grace. Julia Johnston understood it. This sinful woman received it, and it's offered to all of us today. In 2 Corinthians 5:17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Brothers and sisters, Would you accept the grace of Christ today?